The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. ...of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. I pray now by your spirit, would you teach us your ways, O Lord? Would you lead us on a level path through this life, the, through the zigging and the zagging and the, the cloudiness of life? Would you teach us your ways and so lead us on a level path? Because of our enemies, we have strong enemies, stronger than us, O Lord. I thank you that you are faithful. You will not give us up to the will of our adversaries. But instead, you shall cause us to look upon your goodness in the land of the living. So I pray, would you by your spirit today, take your word and work in us such that we patiently wait for you, for your coming. You give us strength, you cause us to be strong, and as we wait, that our hearts would take courage. Do this because of our enemies and for the sake of your glory, that you would get glory in the vanquishing of our enemies and the bringing of us to glory. Would you do this, we pray? Would you do a little bit of it here and now, we pray? Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. We'll start this morning in verse 14. In the text before us this morning, we get to go home. We get to look home. Like Israel in the desert, we are all wanderers, travelers, wayfarers, looking for home. One person writes this, we have a home instinct, a home detector, and it doesn't ring for earth. That is why nearly every society in history except our own instinctively believes in life after death. Like the great mythic wanderers like Ulysses and Aeneas, we have been trying to get home. Earth just doesn't smell like home. However good a road it is, however good a motel it is, However good a training camp it is, it is not home. Heaven is, unquote. And that's about right. The great problem of our society is that we have made earth. We can, because of our, our wealth and our great comfort, we can and have largely made earth feel so much like home. And that's our problem. And, and this is why, as we saw last week, we, we wanderers are so landlocked down here on earth. But God graciously provides a ladder up to him that we may get to the really good life, the life of God. We may share it in him. So the text before us this morning spreads before us a vision of how God creates this ladder and where the ladder leads to. So may God give us sight to, to see past just the, the, the mere words of the text to these, these, in many respects, unimaginable realities that lie behind the words themselves. Let me read the text. I'm going to read. It's, it's a longer text from verse 14 through chapter 60. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. 
according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord." All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish." Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no, no more be light, be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. The word of the Lord. Hmm. Isaiah is writing at this point about 600 years before the life of Christ. 
He is writing to Israel, the offspring of Jacob, the nation of Israel, who were supposed to serve God by displaying his glory to the world, and the nations were to see this glory and be drawn to it like a magnet. But they failed, and God sent them into painful exile in Babylon. And they've now returned home, but not their hearts. Their hearts are still in Babylon. They need a deeper exodus. They think they're home, but they they need someone to truly lead them to their real home, the home that they were made for. So we read in chapter 9 of Isaiah of a coming king described as an everlasting father, everlasting in the sense that his offspring will live forever. He will be a prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, it says there will be no end. Then we read that this king is also God's humble, suffering servant. You see this most vividly in chapter 53. And very vividly and perhaps surprisingly, we see again that that this suffering servant will have offspring who will live in majestic glory forever. But he produces offspring not through procreation, but through his own suffering. And now... In chapter 59, Isaiah returns again to this man, this one Israel, who is a king and who is a servant, and he is now revealed to be the Messiah, the Savior, who delivers his people from the darkness to light and life. So in the text before us this morning, we see this Messiah, we see perhaps surprisingly his covenant, and then we see his home. Messiah, covenant, and home. The first point is this this morning. God sovereignly sends a substitute Savior. God sovereignly sends a substitute Savior. Chapter 59, verse 14. We we pick up here where we left off last week, in the darkness. It says, justice is often turned back and righteousness stands far away. You read this and it sounds a lot like our life our world right now. Truth stumbles in the public square. Why? Because these are the characteristics of God, justice, truth, righteousness, and this is what we humans do with the holiness of God. We recoil from it. We recoil from it because it exposes us. It exposes the fact that deep down we love the darkness. So when the light comes by nature, we recoil from it, we hate it, we want to kill it. That's what we do. This is why truth stumbles in the public square then and now, verse 15. We recoil from God and so we all suppress the truth. Deep down, we really can't stand the reality of a holy, holy, holy God. We can't stand a God who is like this, who exposes us and who will call us to account because no one can stand before the blinding, pure, white light of his perfect holiness. So we recoil from it. Uprightness cannot enter because deep down we hate the light. Therefore, if anyone does try to rise above the muck to depart from evil, they make themselves a prey, a target. The rest of us want to tear them down, but for the reflection of God's light reflected in them. And again, that that sure sounds like our world today. And that, of course, makes for a very dark world. So then Isaiah begins to look forward in time here. And he sees a time when God will act. He, He speaks as though he sees it so clearly. He speaks as though it's as as good as done. He speaks in the past tense, looking forward. He sees God. He sees God seeing this dark world, the the lack of himself in this world, the lack of justice and truth, and he sees that there is no intercessor, that no human being could bring it about. And fascinatingly, verse 15, it says, God is displeased. In other words, God is angry about it. God is angry about it. Don't ever say that a Christian can't be angry. God is angry about it. Holy, holy, holy anger. We, 
we all want a society, a home, where justice reigns, where we and every person we deal with is righteous, where, where all speech is the truth and nothing but the truth, and where everyone is upright. We, we instinctively want that. We know that that's the good life. And yet, we need to be changed. We need to find some way to come out of the darkness, to recoil out of the darkness, and to love the light freely to be filled with light ourselves. This would be the perfect home where everything else is filled with light and we ourselves resonate with it and can freely live in it, completely at ease in it because we ourselves are filled with light. This is the perfect home and this is exactly what God designed us for. So God sees so much of the opposite of that in the world and in holy, holy, holy love for his own glory and the goodness of his own glory, he looks at that and he becomes filled with holy, holy, holy anger. Not a, not a rage, not the back of his hand, but an anger that says, I will do it. I will leave nothing to chance. I will do it. Only I can do it and I will. So he sent his son, Jesus. And you... You see this, you see this holy anger very clearly at that moment when Jesus, just before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John records that, that Jesus stands there before the tomb, staring down our twin enemies of death and sin. And it says there, we translate it in the English as he was deeply moved. Deeply moved. And I think that the best way to think about that is that Jesus was looking there at the tomb and he was angry. Not at humanity, but angry at all that sin and death had brought upon his creation. He was angry and holy, holy, holy love. And he knew at that moment, he knew that the moment that Lazarus came out of the tomb in, in the light of that clear glory, that the darkness would recoil against it. And sure enough, John records, it was exactly at that moment that the religious leaders decided, we're going to kill him. We're going to get rid of the light. But what did Jesus do in his holy, holy, holy anger? He made himself a prey anyway. He said, Lazarus, come forth. His holy, holy anger drove him to sacrifice himself to defeat our enemies. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, <clears throat> and he put on the helmet of salvation, giving himself making himself a prey for us. He did this by dying on the cross for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in the grave, he took off the garments of death and put on the garments of vengeance, defeating death. He paid the full price so that justice could be met for every one of our sins, an infinitely valuable sacrifice for infinite offense, he interceded fully and we gain infinite mercy, full forgiveness for all of our sins. In him, we become light, finally, fully. Justified, washed, made righteous, fit for glory. We Verse 20, who are in Jacob, we who trust in this Redeemer, this offspring of Jacob, Jesus, and we who turn from our transgressions, who turn from, from betting our life that, that, that this or that is really the good life, to, to betting our life on the fact that it's in Him, in this offspring of Jacob, Jesus. Faith and repentance. And this, this faith and repentance, it does something to us. We, we now have a new homecoming, 
and, and, and that changes how we see our world. It is, it is no coincidence that Paul in Ephesians 6 picks up those same two bits of, of military armor and, and applies them to us and says that we must put them on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. To see this Jesus, to, to see his holy anger and how his holy anger moved him to sacrifice himself for us so that we could be made righteous and therefore be saved, that, that should change how we see the world. And when we see the lack of righteousness in the world and therefore this, this great darkness that has fallen upon and oppresses your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your own children, your family, you see it and, and you get angry, not at that person, but at the lack of his righteousness. And you want to see it. You are jealous for it. And so you move towards the darkness to bring about the salvation of God with the gospel. That's what a normal Christian thinks. That's what a normal Christian looks out at the world and sees. We see with the eyes of our Father. It changes us. We take on His anger, His holy anger. Because all of our neighbors, all of our friends, perhaps even you, if you are not in Jacob, your future lies in verses 18 and 19. Jesus will soon return, this time not in mercy, but in wrath and judgment. He will come like a rushing stream, and there will be no time for you on your own power to try to figure out how to stop recoiling from the light. He will come in light, and you will keep on recoiling from him. And you will recoil from him forever. All the, and all the pleasures of life now that, that seem to make this life home, in that moment they will all spoil on you. And they will seem like oh, utter bitterness because of where they led you. So I, I implore you, I implore you if you are not in Christ, trust in him today. Turn and trust in him. If you would, you would come to join in on the hope of the ages. Because it, and it's in that hope that we can rest in today. And this, this brings us to the second point. Second point is this. Christ creates an unchanging covenant with his children. Christ creates an unchanging covenant with his children. Verse 21, we will see why this is so important in just a moment, this, this covenant, but, but look at the terms first. I just love this. I just, I just love I get to stand up here and talk about this. The covenant that Jesus creates is with and for the benefit of his offspring. It is for our benefit, those of us who are in him. But it is accomplished entirely by the Messiah, by Jesus. It is a covenant with God for us, accomplished entirely by Jesus. The spirit that this God that this covenant is with, has, has put upon Messiah, it will also be on and in all of those who are in him. And it says that condition will last forever. And the words of God, the words that Jesus spoke, upon which our faith rests, they too will never leave us forever and ever. These, these things that the spirit that, that links us to God and, and the words that, that create faith in us, that, 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 that unite us to Christ, this, this connection to God, this union with Christ can never be broken because it is based upon the performance, the, the life, the character, the person. So now why, why this covenant? Why, why break up the flow here? Why not just jump right into heaven the words about heaven. Why here? Why, why this unexpected talk of a covenant? It is because, again, I think, uh, we are all uh, travelers on this journey, but many times we turn into wanderers instead of travelers. 
This is very human. We're all prone to sleep on the way, to get lost for a while. We know the destination in general. We know about heaven. We know it's there. But the path to get there, I, I don't know about you, but on any given Monday, the path is not so clear. What does all of this have to do with getting to heaven? It's cloudy. More often than not, it just seems like life is so unclear in the details. The, the, the journey is so unclear in the details. So our hope, our, our hope along the way comes from knowing that there is a way and that we did not create it. That it is not up to us. That it has been created by a perfect God and His perfect Son for us. If it were up to us, we would muck it up every time. But Christian, there is a way and you didn't make the way God does. God does. And though you can't always see the way, the way is guaranteed for you. That's what the covenant means. It is a covenant that guarantees the way for you. God will take you to this place. Not by you, not on the basis of your faith, but on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ for you. God in his fiery, angry love for you and his sovereign choice to save you leaves nothing to chance in Jesus for you. So even when it seems the way is not clear, we can know that there is a way. That way is by walking not by sight, but by keeping in step with the Spirit, to use Paul's phrase from Galatians. To keep in step with the Spirit that is upon our Redeemer, and by walking in the words that are in His mouth, submitted to and led by the Spirit, dwelling on the words of Jesus, this is how we walk the path. This is how we walk through all the unclear details. This is how we are drawn like a magnet to Zion, by keeping in step with the Spirit and dwelling upon His words, letting them govern our lives, govern our steps. He will never leave us nor forsake us as we are led by His Spirit, submitted to Him through His Spirit, governed by His words. Jesus said a lot, but uh, consider that He said more about heaven and hell and was most vivid about these subjects than anybody else. Perhaps the reason we so easily become sleepy in our comfort and, and we lose our way in the pursuit of material stuff is that we don't take Jesus at His words. Jesus' own words do not have a central place in our lives, at least not as much as we think they do. When was the last time you just sought and, and, and ruminated on His words about hell or about heaven? We don't take them as seriously as our master does, at least. But if God would cause us to go back and, and read his words again and to take them seriously, as seriously as he does, it, I think it would cause us not only to recoil from the darkness when we see more clearly where it leads, but to turn to him and long for the light that would fill our hope. would feed our hope and it would lead to our eternal joy. And this leads us to the third point. The third point is this. God is gathering his progeny. I chose that because it has a G in it. God is gathering his progeny into his great glory. God is gathering his progeny into his great glory. This point, of course, comes from chapter 60. Isaiah describes for us in poetic form, home, going home. The poem begins with a sort of command to shine, but that's because light comes upon you, it says, repeats you several times in the first half here. Who is you? 
We keep reading that the you here is Zion. The you is Jerusalem, this, this new Jerusalem. We keep reading, and about halfway through the poem, the language changes. In the, the first half of the poem, people come from all the nations uh, on camels and ships from nearby countries, the sorts of categories and things that Isaiah's original readers would have identified with. So he's using those categories, but then, but then it shifts. For instance, in verse 15, he says, I will make you Zion majestic forever. Things start to shift to a more eternal perspective. And even all of human history will turn on what the nations do with this, this Zion. Verse 12, those that don't serve Zion will perish forever, it says. And we keep reading, and those, those temporary time-based categories, they start to vanish. And that same city is described as having walls made of salvation and gates made of praise. Verse 18. Then verse 19, the, the sun will no longer be necessary, no less the moon, because the Lord himself will be the light of the city. And there will no more be any more mourning at all forever. So we start to see that this is not just a, a temporal place and time of, of Zion. This is an eternal Zion, a perfect place. Then we read verse 21 that this is a physical place. The people possess a land, but then we see verse 22 that this Zion, this place is really made of people. What is true of this city is true of them. It is a, it is a physical place made of people. I have to say, and it is no wonder that Revelation 21, as it talks about the new heavenly city, the new celestial city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it's, it's as if John is just cribbing Isaiah. It's as if with all the, 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 the magnificent and, and sometimes horrific imagery of Revelation, it seems as if sometimes John is just reading Isaiah. He's just reading his Old Testament. People from every nation, the countries of verses 6, 7, and 9 represent the north, south, east, and west of the, of the known world at the time. And then the, the coastlands, verse 9, that's a, that's a Hebrew way of saying people beyond those places, like in Utah, um, the coastlands. Gentiles and Jews, the Gentiles honoring the believing Jews who came before them, verse 14, gathered and united as one Zion with God forever. And just what is it that, that draws the nations like a magnet? Verse 10, it says, For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. In my favor. The justice and the mercy of God displayed to them in his striking of Israel, most clearly seen in his striking of the Israel on the cross, Jesus. Then showing his favor, his grace, his lavish mercy to Israel, to those who are in Jacob, to us. That's what draws the nations. And how will the nations see this justice, this grace, this favor? How will they see it? Who will tell them? Who will show them? How will they see it? Probably other nations. As we, verse 6, wander on our, our way to Zion, all along the way singing the praises of this God, singing the good news. The, the, the picture here is, is a people moving towards Zion and, and, and the gospel, the, the praises of God just fall out of their lips. Wherever they go, they just gossip the gospel. They just do it. They can't help it for the joy set before him. It is no wonder that the gate to this heavenly city is called praise. Because this is the normal Christian life to be filled with praise just falling out of our mouths as we travel along the way, as cloudy and as twisting as it is. Praises to the Lord in hope. 
because, verses 15 and 16, we will be a people who live with a new fame, a new regard in the universe. No matter what you have done in this life, no matter what anyone has ever done to you in this life, this will be true for you. The majesty of God, the glorious majesty of God will rest on you. The royal dignity of the King of kings will rest upon you, Christian. This is what this, this weird phrase means in verse 16 about nursing at the breast of kings. <laughs> the majesty and the, that, that, that deservedness, that, that glory that all kings sought after in this life, you will have in full forever. Just think about that. That, that, that taste of physical majesty that perhaps you once felt in your physical body when you were, I don't know, 17. Like Bob, my majesty is quickly fading. <laughs> that majesty that so quickly slips away with time and illness and decay in this life, it'll be renewed and multiplied forever and ever. You will feel it in a glorified body. For all eternity. Of course, it won't be you. For all eternity, you will praise your Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob because of it. You'll be filled with unimaginable, un we cannot imagine it right now, joy, and He will get all the praise. Because His glory will bring about a new perfect society, verses 17 and 18 again, of perfect strength and order and peace. There will be no need for police or governors. Peace will be our governor. No one will need to instruct you or exhort you. You won't need a preacher standing up in front of you. Perfect righteousness will govern you, will, will teach you, will be in you. Christian, you and everybody else will be so changed, so changed. Uh, this, this point, this came up in our last life training class, and it has become so sweet to me. How, think about this, how is it possible that you or I could spend eternity, for instance, with that person who sexually abused you? How could that possibly be possible? That person who, who so sinned against you so grievously, who, who left you with a limp that will never be cured in this life. How, how is it that, that anything could get me over that? How in the world? What the text is pointing us to is this reality that it is one of the hardest realities for me to imagine or picture, and yet it is true, that we will be so changed so thoroughly, we will still be ourselves, but we will be so changed, and they will be so changed, that we will be able to look one another in the eye in perfect righteousness and still somehow praise God, not for the sin, but for, for what God did through them. How is that possible? I don't know. I only know that this God is powerful enough to do it. And he demonstrates that love in Christ on the cross, and he will do it again. We will be so changed. I've often, I've often thought, well, yeah, the other person will be so changed, but what about me? I will be so changed. I will be so changed. Can you imagine it? I, I have a lot of trouble imagining it. I have to take it on faith. I have to trust that in the light of the powerful glory of God, we will so be changed every moment, forever and ever. 
This point is important because God deals with the offspring of Jacob the same way he dealt with Jacob. You remember, perhaps from the Old Testament, his other uh, eventful night. We heard about his dream last week. His other eventful night when he wrestled with God throughout the night. And in order to subdue him, God injured his hip. He left Jacob with a limp. And Jacob hobbled, still held on to God, not in his personal power, but in his personal need. And he cried, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And God did just that, promising him exactly the very things that we're talking about right now. It is God's normal way of dealing with his children to subdue us, and in doing so, he will often leave us with a limp, something that can't be cured in this life. But the point of that limp is to bring us to the place not of obsessing all the time about how it might be healed now, but to where we, we hold on to him, looking forward in hope to heaven. When God gives you a limp Christian, don't resist. Bitterness is resistance. Don't resist it. Let it point you in hope to the day when all of our mourning will end, when you will be planted and made new by His glorious power, never to be plucked up again. (laughs) Because this, again, this this hope, this, this praise of God for what He will do in the future, it is the only way in. In giving you this limp, he is creating in you a hope of glory that will well up in you praise that transcends all the earth and allows you entrance into this holy, holy, holy city, the new Zion. Don't resist it. He is leading you through that gate, and he wants to lead others through that gate through your praise. By the good news, by the praise of him on our lips, we become fruitful beyond measure. By the gospel, you who cannot have children, who cannot procreate in this life, you will, verse 22, give birth to a great clan, a mighty nation. I think here about the the conversion of D.L. Moody. Um, Moody is famous, but it was just some guy, his Sunday school teacher, who said, I, wanna, I want him to be saved. So he visited Moody at the back of his boot shop. And as the account goes, it says that he didn't do a great job of it, this guy. I don't don't even know his name. He didn't even do that good of a job of it. But he told Moody about the love of God for him in Christ. And that's it. That's all Moody needed, and he became a Christian right there. And how many people have come to faith will enter that gate called praise because of Moody? No, 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 no. Because of that guy that I don't even know his name. The history books of earth talk about Moody. The history books of heaven will say, this man created, brought about offspring, a mighty nation. Not by his own power, but by his joy in God. By the gospel, by the spirit of God. So do you have this hope? Christian, do you have this hope? Is it growing in you? Not perfect. But is it growing in you? Is your nose pointed towards Zion? Why, why is it that, that in our culture, Christians included, we, we have so little hope? Why, why, do, why does a presidential candidate need to, to run on that hope and change? Why, why does that resonate with so many people? When we, have, we, have, we do have so much happiness, but so much despair. So many of the, the apps on the, on the iPhone store are about meditation, about getting happiness. We are so happy, and we are so despairing at the same time. Why is that? I think it's because 
we as a culture have presumed to think that we have already arrived. That's the best way to rob ourselves of hope. Because when we arrive at at whatever false home we aspire to, getting into the right college and getting the right spouse, seeing the kids through college, married and secure, getting into the C-suite, getting enough to retire, at whatever false heaven we aspire to, at, at first, when we get it, we're happy. We love that. But then, after a while, it feels empty. There's a vacuum there. And we start to realize, well, this, there's nothing here. I, th- I thought it was home, but there's nothing here. And despair sets in in that vacuum. That cycle of happiness and despair is telling us something that this, whatever it was, was a false home, that true joy is found elsewhere. It is found in Him, in Christ. The last few words of the chapter subtly point to this. It's found life, the good life, home is found by joy, delight, praise in Christ. Look look at the last few words here. The, The Hebrew word here for hasten actually has two meanings. Uh, it means hasten, one of the meanings. The, the other meaning is enjoy. So, so, so I think what Isaiah is doing here is that he, is, he would rather both meanings hang in place. God is moving as fast as he can to restore his joy, the joy that was robbed from him by the sin and the death that came in the garden and every moment since. God is moving as fast as he can to restore that joy. And the source of his joy will be our enjoyment of his glorious light, like a father watching the kids play with the presents on Christmas morning. That's what God is after, his own joy and our unimaginable joy in his joy. That's the greatest thing about heaven will not be reunion with our loved ones or even our own transformation or even our freedom from sin and death and all mourning. It will be living an unbroken face-to-face enjoyment of this God forever. And and I think I think that joy it'll only increase through the ages. You know you know that habit we have of normalizing like 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 something that's delightful today tomorrow becomes your new normal. It's just like the minimum now. I think we will keep doing that in heaven. I think that habit we have of, of normalizing will keep going. That, that every enjoyment of him will only yield more undiscovered countries of delight. And, and every new discovery that we make will be only increasing God's joy as he watches us do it. From age to age, Zion will be a joy from age to age. C.S. Lewis seems to to see this as he ends his Narnia books, and we'll let this be the last word. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's home. That's the home we were made for. That's the home that's coming. God is bringing it as fast as he can, Christian. Wait. Wait in hope.
May God cause the truth of our future to fill us with hope, a hope that causes us to cling to him until he blesses us forever and evermore. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. As I began this, I pray it now even more strenuously. As we leave now, would you cause your spirit to fill us, to rest upon us? Would you cause the words of your mouth, Lord Jesus, to dwell richly within us and guide our steps? Would you cause us, even when we don't even realize we're doing it, to be submitted to your spirit, to keep in step with him, led by him as you lead us unchangeably, inexorably, unstoppably to this new Zion. Fill us with imaginations for our future. Thank you for being such a good, good Savior in your holy and powerful and mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.